0: this is guns and butter
1: There's
2: over there loss of land is a big thing and the wall has has contributed to this uh, apartheid wall the separation wall whatever you want to call it it has nothing to do with security you cannot do to the west bank and jerusalem what, what israel has done to gaza you cannot close it off and also have israelis living there so long as there are israelis there there will be ways to get out because israelis have to have ways to get out you can put up all the checkpoints and walls that you want the big thing about the wall is that it is a wonderful way to steal palestinian land why in palestine the situation is different from here with farmers here, you have a homestead. You have a home and the farmers' land surround it. In Palestine, you have a village and the farmers live in the village and all the lands are outside the village. So all you have to do is build the wall between the village and its lands and
0: the Palestinians have lost their, their land. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dorothy Noor. Today's show, the cost of occupation to Israelis and Palestinians. Dorothy Noor is a native of San Francisco and grew up in the Bay Area. She met her Israeli husband when he came to study at UC Berkeley in the early 1950s. They and their three children made Israel their home in 1958. For the past nine years, she has been a full-time activist against Israel's occupation of Palestine. She is a member of New Profile, a pluralist feminist movement of men and women which seeks to transform Israel from a militaristic society to a civil one. New Profile supports refusal to serve in the military, opposes the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territory, and supports selective divestment from companies that contribute to maintaining the occupation. Dorothy Noor is also a member of ICRR, the Israeli Committee for Residency Rights. ICRR is an ad hoc committee targeting a policy that Israel instituted in March of 2006, that of refusing entry to the occupied Palestinian territory to individuals who are citizens of other countries but are of Palestinian descent. On March 19, 2009, she spoke at Sonoma State University for Project Censored. Dorothy Noor.
2: Hi, thanks for inviting me and thanks for coming. On the back table, you will find materials, handout materials, I hope you will take because my subject, I could go on for hours and hours and hours since we don't have hours and hours and hours. The handout material on the back table substantiates the things that I am going to say. It's my evidence, actually. I'm going to give you more or less the outline and you will find some of these are materials that I've collected and uh, and uh, put together. There are two big ones. One is the continuous state of war, which is what Israel is in, and the Palestinians along with them. And uh, the other is socioeconomic effects of the occupation, the co- cost of the occupation. And then there are some materials from B'Tselem. There is also a um, list of activist organizations and if you've not heard of B'Tselem it's on the list of activist organizations, they are a human rights organization, B'Tselem in English means in the image of with all the connotations and um, I trust their statistics that you can go online and see them, but they will also send you any materials that you want, you just have to say that you would like to receive materials by email or by mail and you will And I uh, really recommend that if you're interested in the subject that you do go to them. Uh, There is also a sign-up sheet for New new Profile's um, uh, alternative information email list. Sometimes we go a little bit overboard, but we try not to. Mm -hmm. The information that you receive on it is information that you will not read normally in the commercial press here or in Europe or other places. You might get some of it in Israel. When we publish things from Israel, we usually have something to say about it. But at any rate, if you want to know about what is happening, you can keep up to date with our list and with other lists that are also on the um, activist list there. Uh, My subject today is the, um, the cost of uh, the occupation to Israelis and Palestinians. It's a large subject. I'm only going to give you bare background. But uh, in, in dealing with, I'm going to deal mainly with Israelis, not because there is any symmetry between the two, because there can never be symmetry between an occupier and an occupied, an oppressor and an oppressed, However, few people know that Israelis also pay a price for their governments, governments in the plural, all the governments from Bengal until today, their policies of ethnic cleansing and, and uh, expansion. And I think it's important that you know this because at the end of my talk I'm going to ask you to do your bit, and I think if I give you information that about Israelis as well as about Palestinians... Uh, it will be easier for you to understand why I'm asking you to do this. But I'll leave that for the end. Uh, in criticizing Israel, I want to say that uh, it's uh, no more anti-Semitic to criticize Israel than it is anti-American to criticize America for the Vietnam War or for Iraq and, and uh, Afghanistan now. Some people think that criticism and anti-Semitism go together. They do not. They're two separate things. I'm not anti-Semitic. I am Jewish, and I am Israeli as well as American. Uh, I'd like to begin with a bit of background information, which many of you may know, but just in case you don't. In 1947, things don't begin in medias res. They begin somewhere. In 1947, when the UN decided to recommend partitioning uh, Palestine, the situation was thus. The Jews were a third of the population. They owned 6% of the land. If we want to be generous, some people will argue 8%, okay? But that's the top, and most historians say 6%. And they, in a largely agrarian country, they lived primarily the Christian and the Jews both lived primarily in the, in the cities. Uh, they were craftsmen and they were tradesmen. Seventy percent of the Muslims lived on the land, off the land. And yet, despite these statistics, the UN decided to uh, partition Palestine, giving 55 percent to the Jews and forty-five percent to the Palestinians. Which is a bit odd, of course, because you give one-third of the population, more than half. Uh, something is wrong somewhere. In any event, not only was land partitioned eventually, but uh, Israel did not stop with fifty-five percent. It went on during a war between in nineteen forty-eight and forty-nine. To grab seventy-eight percent of the land, and it uh, exiled, kicked out seven hundred and fifty thousand, approximately Palestinians, and making to make sure that they did not return, demolished five hundred and thirty of their villages. So this is the situation that we had before 1967. When I talk about occupation, although in the ensuing I'm going to be talking about the West Bank primarily and so on, I want you to know that in my opinion the occupation did not begin in 1967, began in 1948 and 1949. By the time the war was over, Israel had 78% of the land and uh, the Palestinians were left without anything because Jordan took the West Bank and Egypt got Gaza and the Palestinians were without a bit of property. Now, they had lived for 400 years under Ottoman rule and then another 20-some-odd years under British rule, part of it, most of it, which was mandated. But neither the Brits nor the Ottomans colonized Palestine. Palestinians lived off the land and in Palestine as for centuries as they had before. Another point that I think is important to know is that from the time of the Crusades, at least, if not earlier, Jews, Christians, and Muslims lived very well in Palestine until the birth of Zionism, and Zionists started coming into Palestine in larger and larger numbers. In fact, in 1937, the Peel Commission made the point... The Peel Commission was also trying to find a solution because that by that time there was friction between the two communities, the Muslim and the, and the Jewish, and... Um, It commented that uh, this was purely a a question of nationalism because Jews lived well in all the other Arab countries. And in fact, the problem of the Jews was traditionally with European Christians, not with Muslims. Uh, It was in the, particularly in East Europe, that uh, the Jews suffered from pogroms and other problems, and the Christians did not like them. For other reasons, whereas amongst the Arabs, they even were able to attain places in government in some of the countries. Uh, it wasn't until the 19th century that Jews could be elected, let's say, in Britain, for instance. So that I think it's very important to remember when we talk about this, that Jews can live with Muslims together. They do so here in the United States, Muslims, Christians, Jews, Hindus, and God knows what else live together very well, and in other countries, in fact, in I would say all of North America, South America, Europe, and uh, Australia, New Zealand. So that in most of the world, people mix okay, and I think that that's a much better solution to problems than having a country built on ethnicity. I didn't. I was not of that opinion when I came to Israel, but that's a, a whole other story. People do change, thank goodness, and (laughs) progress, I hope one can say. So this brings us now to 1967 and the occupation. Uh, Or before that, uh, let me say that there were a number of Zionist schools of thought. The two that gained uh, ascendancy and and, uh, hegemony are the labor Zionists and the um, revisionist Zionism. And both felt that both advocated expansion. They wanted a lot of land and ethnic cleansing, to one degree or another. So this was something that was not uh, not of a sudden. It was, it was already thought out even in, in Europe even. And I forgot to mention that there's a list of uh, five books that I would like to recommend as well. Two of them are on ethnic cleansing. And the difference between them, Benny Morris is a much thicker book and Elon Pape's is a much thinner book. Both are good historians and with, there are minor differences besides that. But uh, <clears throat> Benny Morris says, um, yes, this was a terrible thing. We did awful things, but that was important because otherwise we couldn't have had a Jewish state. And Elon Pape says, just injustice is injustice and it was not right. And I agree with Pape, of course. So I would... But I use Benny Morris as a source book, especially when I have right-wing friends who say, oh, this didn't happen. I thumped to Benny Morris very quickly, and I say, Benny Morris says. Whereas no one would accept, these same people would not listen to a word of what Ilan Pape says. Yes, Benny Morris, um, yes, they do. So all the books I recommend. The last one on the list is Neve Gordon's um, Israel's Occupation. And it is a new book. It came out in October, and I want to recommend it highly. It's It's a theory wrapped in history. You can accept the theory or not, but the historical overview is excellent. And it's written, this presentation does not get in the way of your understanding what he says.
0: You're listening to Israeli activist Dorothy Noor. Today's show, The Cost of Occupation to Israelis and Palestinians. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: So now we come to 1967, where the Palestinians have been dispossessed, and suddenly Israel takes also the West Bank and Gaza away. And what has happened since, and had not happened before, is that expansionism and uh, and ethnic cleansing get underway at once again. After the big, you know, what Israel calls independence, the Palestinians call el nakba the catastrophe. And the whole thing starts over again. Many of the people in the West Bank are refugees from where they were kicked out of in in Israel. Uh, However, all of this, Israel has (coughs) taken land and lots of land, but all of this has not brought Israel peace or Israeli security. When I talk about Israelis, I distinguish between government policy and Israelis because Israelis suffer from this, uh, even though many agree with government policy, but a lot of people agreed with Bush too. I mean, so we can't all think the same way. Uh, the ways in which, the main way that, uh, that, we can actually put under one heading, the main way that the Israelis suffer, and that's devaluation of human life. And this, i I think we can say exists in at least four areas. One of these is a loss of life and limb. A second is in the socioeconomic uh, arena. A third is in uh, post-traumatic distress. And the fourth is in lacks of security, a total lack of security to life, limb, and whatever. And I want to look at these quickly, one after the other. Uh, on the on the uh, on the table, there, Israel living in a continuous state of war, you have the statistics. But briefly, uh, Israel has lost uh, about twenty-two thousand four hundred, uh, not quite up to date, uh, uh, soldiers, security personnel uh, since nineteen forty-eight. Uh, it has lost about a thousand. Civilians since the Second Intifada that began in um, uh, September 28, 2000. It has many people who have been uh, become invalids because of the various fighting. There have been 12, at least 12. I've excluded, I haven't included some of the things that were questionable, like Janine in 2002 April 2002, but even without that, there have been 12 uh, wars or, or battles or what you would call um, uh, maneuvers or in less than 66 years. Right? And therefore, one young woman, daughter of Avron Burk, who was a speaker of the Israeli Knesset, said to one day at dinner, she says, and you have this on the living in continuous state of war, she says to her father, she says, you don't understand, when you were a child, when you were young, when you were my age, you could expect a war every ten years, and there was hope. But I'm only 26, and I have seen five wars, and the next one is always around the corner, which is true. Now, some people do not mind this. For instance, uh, those who are idealists, are willing to sacrifice life for for land, and nothing is more expendable in Israel than life is. And you have, for instance, it begins even with Ben Gurion. This is a terrible thing to say. A month after Kristallnacht in Europe, where uh, I think you all know what Kristallnacht is, right? I don't have to explain that. Ben Gurion was asked apparently if what he would do if he were asked to save all the Jewish children. And he said, if I knew it was possible to save all Jewish children of Germany by their transfer to England and only half of them by transferring them to Eretz Israel, I would choose the latter. Because we are faced not only with the accounting of these Jewish children, but also with the historical accounting of the Jewish people. This is in his book, Righteous Victims. And this is a a very horrible thing to say, but he is not the only one. People who believe that in Zionism and that Israel, for whatever reason, there are people who believe in it for religious reasons, God gave them they make God into a real estate agent, you know, and uh, or or whatever other reasons they might, security or so on, which it has not given. Uh, the Nobel Prize winner, and who is also an immigrant from the United States, in 2005 in economics, uh, said... We are too sensitive to our losses, and also to the losses of the other side. In the Yom Kippur War, 3,000 soldiers were killed. It sounds terrible, but that's small change. It's hard to believe that anyone could say that, and he himself had a son lost in the First Lebanese War. And people accept this. Susie Weiss, who lost one of her six children, a 20-year-old boy, a third of her six children in... Uh, October 1st, 2002 in a battle cried out at his grave now I feel truly an Israeli which is an awful thing to say I mean um, imagine you could say that you feel American only when you were burying a child who had been killed in war not all of us feel this way though and in uh, in the back we have um, New Profile has a poster. It's uh, a picture of a baby, of a uh, a fetus in the uterus. And it's dressed in military clothing. And we say, make babies, not soldiers. And, and we are not telling people to, to, to produce children. What we are trying to say is that the Israeli uterus is a mechanism for producing soldiers. Nowhere else in the world do... Uh, Jewish boys and girls at the age of 18 are required to go to the army. Not all do, about 50, over 50% don't go, but by law they are all required to. Nowhere else in the world have so many Jews been killed in violence since World War II. Nowhere else in the world are Jews kept in constant fear of anti-Semitism all over Europe, of... uh, uh, of what's going to happen tomorrow or the day after tomorrow or 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 in a week of of Iran and its nuclear weapons of uh, of the Hamas and its um, ideas and so on you're kept that way i think that uh, so the one reason that israelis do accept this is because they are kept in that constant state of fear and i think that you know what that is here in this country as well Although there it's probably a bit more, but also it's education and if you take one of our new profile brochures, you'll see we have an exhibit and we use we take only materials from uh, journals from newspapers from from uh, Advertisements and so on and so forth. Uh, advertisements and PR people do not make assumptions; they do not create them. They use our assumptions. So you will see on the in this on the flyer there, um, you know that you can sell anything by by appealing to the, the militaristic aspect. So that you have, for instance, a mother there who's saying, Oh, my, my head, it hurts. I'm so frightened. My son is in, in a commando unit, and, and I, I'm so worried, and so on and so forth. And the doctor recommends such and such a medication. This speaks to people, because everyone goes through it, or all the people who have kids who went who are in the, in the military, and especially if they're in combat units, go through it. But one woman, who lost a child, her only daughter. She has two sons, to a um, suicide bomber. Her daughter was 14 years old. Nuri Paled Elhanan, who is a member of the and one of the founders, I believe, of the uh, uh, the Parents Circle, which is uh, Palestinian and Palestinian and Israeli bereaved parents who do not preach. Uh, an ideology except no war. But she says at her speech at the EU Parliament in honor of International Women's Day in 2005, a speech that she dedicated to a Palestinian woman, Miriam Rabban, and her husband Kamal, who lost five children in one blow the first day of summer vacation in the strawberry patch when they were picking strawberries when an Israeli tank shell exploded. And they lost also several cousins of these children. A tank shell exploded in their midst. In her speech, she makes this point. We're all victims. She's talking about women because it is Women's Day, International Women's Day. We are all victims of mental, psychological, and cultural violence that turn us into one homogenic group of bereaved or potentially bereaved mothers, Western mothers who are taught to believe that their uterus is a national asset just like uh, they believe that the Muslim uterus is an international threat. They are educated not to cry out, I gave him birth, I breastfed him, he is mine, and I will not let him be the one whose life is cheaper than oil, whose future is less worth than a piece of land. All of us are terrorized by mind-infecting education to believe all we can do is either pray for our sons to come back or be proud of their dead bodies. So the exact statistics on, on the number of uh, killed is, are in the pages back there. But I think that it's very important that you understand that this is uh, something that is ongoing. Did I mention Avram daughter and what she said? I did. Okay. So there were two points in what she said. One, she said that she thought it was great that her father could expect a war only once every ten years. And the second is, of course, that the point that she made is that there is no hope that the next war is right around the corner. Uh, All things being relative, her father enjoyed a better time once every ten years is better than we... The last two wars have been once every two years. I wouldn't call... The last one was not a a war, it was a campaign. It was a campaign of the fourth most powerful army in the world against a basically uh, unarmed and innocent people. Um, Sometimes people will say, well, yes, but they are doing such terrible things. They're shooting... They're shooting into Sderot. They're shooting missiles. Yes, but... Israel has totally closed off the, the uh, Gaza Strip and uh, people cannot get out from there. This was totally, was murder because it was a massacre because there was no place for the people to escape. And, and, um, but I'm talking about Israelis and the price they pay. The price I pay is that I can't take these things when they happen and it does work on me very hard.
0: You're listening to Israeli activist Dorothy Noor. Today's show, The Cost of Occupation to Israelis and Palestinians. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
2: When we go to the socioeconomic issue, uh, I know that right now the socioeconomic conditions are not good anywhere. But the point is there are two points actually. Then in Israel, this has been happening for a number of years. It's not something that's new. It's only worse now, as it is everywhere. And besides that, uh, it's not all part of the cost of the occupation. A lot of the changes came about when Israel, from, from being a, um, not, it wasn't a, a socialistic Society, but it was a welfare state society, began adopting neoliberal uh, economics and, of course, globalization. Globalization needs cheap labor. So lots of companies that had been in Israel went to um, just disappeared. The textile industry, for instance, was very big in Israel, and it just disappeared. And with it, a lot of jobs for people, and this was not now. This was some years back. Given all that, the government has enough money to put out a great deal for occupation, for expansion, and for ethnic cleansing, so that while 24.7% of the population live under the poverty line, inclusive of every four Israelis over 65 of age, uh, 35.8% of the children, 5% of the employed of families with four or more children, and 80,000, or probably less by now, because they are dying out. 80,000 last year, uh, Holocaust survivors who are in their 80s and 90s. See these poor people in their 80s and 90s demonstrating and asking for their rights. Uh, and so that while more people depend on soup kitchens to save off starvation, more people are homeless than ever before, and while at the same time social benefits have been drastically cut, in fact there are very few, practically nothing, there's no money for health or education, much less for bomb and missile shelters in areas where people suffer from missiles. Um, The Israeli government spends enormous funds on expansion for the purpose of creating the greater Israel, which in a sense exists right now. The apartheid wall is being built at $4 million a mile with 400 miles planned, twice the length that had it been built on the Green Line. You all know what the Green Line is. That is the armistice line in 1949... Last year, 6,000 more units were planned and constructed in highly subsidized settlements on the West Bank with more planned for this year. And there's ample money for roads on the West Bank for Israelis only. In fact, the news um, uh, a couple of weeks before we left said there was even $3 million to build a road that no one uses. It's just empty. No one uses it. Well, roads are also a means of separating Palestinians from their land, so that this is a road that no one uses, whether a settlement, which is really, we should call colonies, we should call settlers colonizers and settlements colonies, because that's the purpose of it. So it's no wonder, then, given all the perks that they have, and there are many, we don't know how much exactly is spent on the settlements, because this is, just as we don't know how much is spent on defense, because these are taboo topics, even... Ministers don't know these uh, figures. But we do know that by comparison to the rest of Israel, to Israel proper, right? Uh, there is a, a population growth of 6% in the West Bank in Jerusalem versus uh, 2% in Jerusalem and much less in most other places in Israel. And this tells us a lot. So that Israel is spending, it's not that the government doesn't have the money, but it has it to spend on but it wants to spend it on, and that is expansion and ethnic cleansing. When we move then to, um, to the third aspect, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, I don't have statistics on this, but I have one statistic, at least it's hard. I mean, the, the government does not like to tell us how many people are suffering from this. But one statistic I I do have, and that is in 2002, a um, center opened up not far from where I live, and uh, at the beginning they they could deal with 25 or 30 people. They were open about a week or two when they discovered that most of their problems there with alcohol and drug abuse was from kids who were under... Uh, post-traumatic stress disorder from their experience, what they had done in the West Bank and uh, Gaza and other places. And some of these things are detailed in the pages on the continuous state of war and you should read them because they will tell you a lot about what the kids are subject to. In fact, yesterday in the evening there was um, comments by some, some soldiers who had served in Gaza who told about the same thing, and uh, if anyone is interested, Haaretz English edition is going to carry this on Friday. Is going to carry the testimonies of these kids um, who are doing terrible things. Of course, it's been denied by others, but but uh, you can get online to www.haaretz.com, one word easy dot com, and um, if you're interested in knowing what they're saying. This is not the first time. There are testimonies. There's another organization on the pages back there that's called uh, Breaking the Silence of Shovrim Shtika in Hebrew. And uh, this was organized by a young man who came from an ultra-religious family and did not have to go to the army and decide he wanted to defend his country. And he was most of the time in Hebron. And um, after a year or two, when they were beating up a four-year-old child, he said, what am I doing and why am I doing it? And uh, he now takes uh, groups out to Hebron to show show people what the Jewish community is like there. It is one of the worst. I mean, not all settlers are bad people. A lot of settlers have gone out for economic conditions. But the ultra-idealistic religious ones are not nice people. Uh, That's putting it mildly. Uh, They would tear my eyes out as as soon as not. He uh, also began this organization which has no political agenda because he wants to encourage as many kids to come out and tell their stories, partially as therapy and partially so that others will know what they're doing. So you can go into that file a movie has been made, a documentary, a documentary that has that tries to be artistic as well, recently called Z32. And if you have a chance, I recommend that you see it. Also, if you have, if you haven't seen Waltz with Bashir, it is another movie that you should uh, you should see. Although there has been criticism of that because it says that it makes the Israeli. Israeli, It it tends to make him a good guy and doesn't tell you very much of anything about the Palestinians. But uh, it's about what happened in Lebanon in the first Lebanese war, and primarily it focuses on Sabra and Shatila, two camps of uh, Palestinian refugees. And the um, Lebanese Christian Falanga went in and slaughtered for three days The point is that they could not have gone in and slaughtered without Israeli permission, without... Ariel Sharon was was at the time um, minister of defense, and they could not have gone in without his explicit agreement, so that Israel really is... They may have done the work, but Israel is behind... Ariel Sharon was behind it. And um, I remember even during that time that a soldier couldn't take it. He was standing and looking over and saw what was happening. And people were just being slaughtered. You know, their heads were being cut off and they were being shot. and It was a horrible thing. But, um, okay. So most Israeli kids, like American kids, are brought up to be decent human beings. And the trouble is that when you fight not another army, but you fight a civilian population, you're bound to, unless... Unless someone says stop, unless you're given specific directions not to do certain things, you're bound to go and, and get off the beaten track and very likely to do horrible things, which is what happens. The stories are, are awful. I know too many personal, from my personal experience. I can't go through them now, but uh, it does impact on, on the kids. So one young woman who had returned from India, a 24-year-old woman, uh, in response to an article on drug trafficking by Israelis who had gone backpacking. Backpacking in, in, the, in Asia and South America is traditional for kids after they get out of the army. And she says, drug trafficking is not the issue. Drugs are not the issue. The issue is the sick Israeli society, the society at war. They have to understand that drugs are a substitute for something that young people don't get in this country. They call someone who takes drugs "saut" scratched. They think it's his illness, but they're wrong. His illness is something else. A month or two ago, this young man was in the territories and he saw a man or child whom he killed. A month ago, this young man entered the home of an Arab family at night, beat a child, a mother, and took the father into detention. That's what scratched him. That's his emotional disturbance, not the drugs. He takes the drugs in order to try to forget the pictures that are with him all the time since then. I'm not saying this is true of everyone, but everyone has a strong need for escape, for liberation. And Yudha Shaul, the young man I was talking about earlier, who was, came from an ultra-religious family, said, it's a situation that screws up everyone. People start out at different points and then end up at different points. But everyone goes through this process. No one returns from the territories without it leaving a deep imprint messing up his head. And a doctor, I don't know if I brought that or not, uh, the center that I told you about, when it opened up and it could take service 25 or 30 people, and after it discovered that most of the kids there were there because of post-traumatic stress, uh, publicized itself, and the, week, the first week after it publicized itself, it had 900 requests for help. Uh, and one of the young men committed suicide before being able to get to the army. By the way, suicide is one of the largest killers in the military, in the in Israeli army. It was the largest in 2003 and in 2005. I don't have statistics for other years, but it is a major killer. We don't know about suicide. A lot more work has to be done before I can say, "Well, this is a result of post-traumatic stress or anything like that," because um, perhaps people were suicidal even before they came into the army, and the army just simply helped. I don't know. Nevertheless, it is a statistic that we should should keep in mind when we come to the fourth area, security. There is none, and this is this is the whole irony of the situation because Israel Zionism wanted a country that would be a homeland, not only a homeland, but a a safe uh, refuge for the Jews. And it has turned out to be that there is no country in the world today, except for countries that are under war, like Somalia or or, uh, Iraq and so on, where Jews are less safe than in Israel. And I think this is very important to keep in mind, because as... as, uh, as uh, Avram Burg's daughter said, and there is no end in sight. In fact, uh, um, our defense minister Ehud Barak said just recently, before we left on the on television, he said, "It's a wonderful country. Between wars, we <laughs> we <laughs> bloom. Yeah, but there's a war every two years, and it's not. You may bloom between wars, but you don't bloom after wars. People don't come. It affects tourism and a lot of other things, and." it is affecting what people where people want to live a lot of jews have are leaving israel immigration has dried up and emigration is going strong in fact the cia had a report out the other day saying essentially what a, a number of israeli politicians have been saying for 15 years ever since oslo is that the demographics are going against israel and that um, by 2020, the Palestinians will be a lot more in population than the Jews, and, and feels that a lot of the Jews will come back to America and, and England and so on, where they immigrated from.
0: You're listening to Israeli activist Dorothy Noor. Today's show, The Cost of Occupation to Israelis and Palestinians. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is guns and butter.
2: When we come to the Palestinian side of the story, it's pretty ugly. Um, I I hardly know where to begin because, uh, of course, in the loss of life, since September 29, 2000, until January 31, 2008, there have been 5,945. Palestinians killed, or if we average this out, 748 annually. 1,417 were killed uh, in this last Gaza escapade. It's very easy to kill people there because they have no place to run. And people were told to get out of their homes, and they got out of their homes and to congregate into one house. Houses were bombed and so on. Also, of the homes demolished, we have demolished 24,138 houses. Now, Palestinians are large families. So if you multiply this by 8 or 9 or 10, which is the size of most Palestinian families that live on the land at least, less so in the cities, then you get an idea of how many Palestinians have been deprived of their homes. And the loss of home is not just the loss of a structure. I mean, if you think of your own home, uh, it's where you're... Identity is—it's where your family albums are. It's where your your studies are, if you've been studying. It's where your books are. It's where your memories of your children when they were small are. It's it it's something that I can hardly fathom what it's like to lose a home, to lose my home. Um, again, loss of land is a big thing, and the wall has has contributed to this. I. You all are familiar with the apartheid wall, the separation wall, whatever you want to call it. It has nothing to do with security. You cannot do to the West Bank and Jerusalem what what Israel has done to Gaza. You cannot close it off and also have Israelis living there. So long as there are Israelis there, there will be ways to get out, because Israelis have to have ways to get out. You can put up all the checkpoints and walls that you want. I know so many stories, and... uh, I myself am a great believer in, uh, in civil disobedience when necessary, so that uh, personally, I know that it is very easy to get people, Palestinians out if you want to, and you know that they are decent people and they are uh. I just recently took a woman to see her sister. She'd not seen her for twelve years because her sister lives in Gaza and she lives in the West Bank. And uh, fortunately, or unfortunately, I mean, this is rather ridiculous. Her uh, sister's husband had cancer and was therefore undergoing treatment in an Israeli hospital. So finally, the two sisters were able to see one another after 12 years of not having seen one another. The same woman, whole family lives in Rafa in the, in, in Rafia in Hebrew, and Rafa in Arabic, in uh, Gaza, and I. I tried to reach her a number of times to ask how her family was, which I did manage to hear that she they had all been told to go into one building. I don't know whether they survived or not. I just didn't manage to reach her before I left. But it's a very heartbreaking situation. You know people. These are human beings, right? Uh, there is no freedom of movement. You have the checkpoints everywhere, and as I said, they can get out. The big thing about the wall is that it is a wonderful way to steal Palestinian land. Why? In Palestine, the situation is different from here with farmers. Here, you have a homestead. You have a home, and the farmers' land surround it. In Palestine, you have a village, and the farmers live in the village, and all the lands are outside the village. So all you have to do is build the wall between the village and its lands, and... The Palestinians have lost their, their lands, right? I know villages have lost 92% of the land, and the, um, uh, the village that the young man who was hurt, uh, Tristram, was uh, demonstrating against the, the wall going up there is going to lose uh, some 50% of its land, if not more. And it's a very sad situation because uh, this means several things, that there's not going to be two states because there's no place for two states. Israel has most of the land already. And um, these people are going to be forced out of their villages because they have survived primarily from agriculture, and there's no agriculture. So what Israel is doing, I've not seen this written anywhere else, but if you go to the West Bank, you see it with your own eyes. It's urbanizing the West Bank because most of the settlements are not agrarian. Most of the settlements are are suburbs of Tel Aviv. Most of the people work in Israel proper. I mean, you come during rush hour in the evening or the morning, this is very obvious. So that in short order, there will be no, or almost no, land for the Palestinians to to work at all. Uh, Another problem, of course, is prison. We have approximately 11,000 Palestinians in prison now, Israel is uh, negotiating all the time about uh, Gilad Shalit, and I understand his parents. I'm sure that it's very depressing for them, and especially since we know that Ron Arad never returned. Uh, another a navigator who was um, shot down in one of the wars and was never found with all the attempts to try to find him and so on. The same thing is going to probably happen to, to Gilad Shalit. And But what this is doing, it's making youngsters and others going to the army ask questions and say if they really want to go, which is fine. But I'm sorry that it has to be the expense of Gilad. On the other hand, 11,000 Palestinians who are in prison... Have eleven thousand families waiting for them to return too, and many of the prisoners, some six hundred or so, are not have never even been brought to trial. They're on what's called administrative detention. Administrative detention—you uh, just pick someone up and throw them into jail. There's no trial. Your lawyer, the defense lawyer, has no idea what the case is, what the charges are against him. I mean, this is happening also in the in in. Uh, the United States with prisoners from Iraq and so on. So it's not unfamiliar to you. Uh, Administrative detention is for four months, but that can be, it can be turned around ad infinitum. Two 16-year-old cousins, two female 16-year-old cousins were picked up from their homes. One is married and one wasn't from their homes in the evening taken from the bosoms of their families and thrown into jail and they did i i think that they have finally been let out after two sessions of administrative detention no one knows why they're there the girls had never done anything they lost the years of schooling that they're both 16 and even though one was married both were in school you ha- you have no idea palestinians place a great deal of emphasis on education there's a university in every city and all Palestinian children are expected to go to high school, and uh, many of them go on to university. There's something that's not known uh, widely. So the girls were taken out. They lost a year of school. I have personal friends who have had members of their family uh, taken to jail and um, what else... Uh, Palestinians get 10% of the water that Israelis do, even though the, the water is from Palestinian wells. And um, there's no freedom. You never know when the army is going to come into your village. I, I talked about demolitions. There are whole villages that have demolition orders for all the houses. And um, it couldn't be. I mean, there's just no justice here. And until there will be justice... When a lot of people say that they are working for peace. No, I'm working for justice because justice must precede peace. There can be no peace without justice. So I'm working for justice and not for peace. And I believe that we will all be happier if we have it. You, of course, have your part to play in this. As you know, America gives uh, $3 billion annually in military aid to Israel. That's your taxpayers' money. You should care about this. It also guarantees uh, Israel's, to have ten, what is it, $10 billion in credit guarantees. And uh, you should, therefore, have a personal interest in watching where your money goes, especially at times like this. Tell Obama that you need the money for internal needs and not for external. should stop sending it to and especially arms. We don't need arms. People make money off of arms. But the majority of the people suffer from them. It's time to stop this. Uh, I advocate very strongly boycotts and uh, divestment and sanctions. These are nonviolent means of pressuring governments. Everyone in my family will suffer from a boycott. But if I have to measure, everyone in my family who is in Israel, that is, will suffer from a boycott. But if I have to measure that against the loss of life, I know what comes first. We need to change. We need to bring about change. We can't wait another 20 years for Israel, for all the Jews to leave. By that time, so many more people will have been killed. So please, everyone can boycott. Just watch what you're buying. If you see that it comes from Israel, don't buy I know that we have some very good products, but I can't not buy because I don't. there's nothing else for me to buy in Israel, but you can. Uh, if you belong to a church or to a synagogue or to some organization that has money divested in Israel or in companies that uh, serve the occupation, for instance, like Caterpillar, which is used to demolish, the bulldozers are used to demolish homes, try to get your organization to divest and uh, whatever sanctions that you can think of that would bring pressure on Israel and are nonviolent, please support them. Please think about pressuring Israel in some way to stop. Thank you. There’s
0: a man over there. You’ve been listening to Dorothy Noor. Today's show has been The Cost of Occupation to Israelis and Palestinians. Dorothy Noor earned a PhD in English Literature from Tel Aviv University in Israel and has been an English teacher for most of her professional life. She moved to Israel with her Israeli husband and three children in 1958. She is a full-time activist against Israel's occupation of the Palestinian territory and supports selective divestment from companies that contribute to maintaining the occupation. She is a member of New Profile, which seeks to transform Israel from a militaristic society to a civil one. Visit New Profile's website at www.newprofile.org. That's newprofile.org. Dorothy Noor is also a member of ICRR, the Israeli Committee for Residency Rights. ICRR targets an Israeli policy, that of refusing entry to the occupied Palestinian territory, To individuals who are citizens of other countries but are of Palestinian descent. If you would like to be on the Alternative Information List Serve, email Dorothy Knorr at DOR underscore NAOR at netvision.net.il. That's DOR underscore NAOR at netvision.net.il. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, call 510 848 6767, extension 628, or email us at BLFaulkner at yahoo.com. That's BLFAULKNER at yahoo.com. Our website, GunsandButter.net, is under reconstruction. Hey, yo, these are
1: some serious times that we live in, G Sniper, trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying, look what decides yourself for peace, give thanks, live life, and release, you dig me, you got me?